This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And from the Herald and Blanche Kalk News Studio, this is Ozarks at Large for Monday, June 6, 2022. I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. And I'm Timothy Dennis. Ahead on today's program, the only diaper-specific donation organization in northwest Arkansas receives 100,000 diapers from Sam's Club and Huggies. Plus, Randy Dixon checks in with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth to take another trip into the archives of the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. This week, we revisit a harrowing time for residents of Jonesboro and the whole of Arkansas in the late 1990s. Those stories and more ahead on today's show. But first, Ozark's wildflowers are now in early summer bloom. Heavy spring rains have yielded unusually large masses of tall white flowering hemlock this season, visible along rural roads, creeks, and meadows. Ozark's at largest Jacqueline Froelich traveled to the plot of land south of Cane Hill to meet with a botanist to profile the pretty but very poisonous plant. Botanist Jennifer Ogle wanders on a high lush cattle pasture this cloudy, cool morning in search of wild hemlock. So there's a lot of um, European species in here, a lot of fescue, um, orchard grass and things like that. And it's been invaded to a certain extent by wild hemlock. There's quite a bit of it in this field actually growing. The first year of growth, this non-native biennial plant produces attractive, low-growing mounds of leaves from seed. It looks a little bit fern-like, don't you think? In the first year, it resembles a fern. And it has really shiny leaves, dark green, shiny leaves. Healthy second-year hemlock plants reach 6 to 10 feet tall, producing numerous umbrella-shaped clusters of tiny white five-petaled flowers, attractive enough to decorate a kitchen table. But don't pick the hemlock. Ogo carefully clips a large cluster of flowers, including the purple-mottled stem, which is hollow, wearing protective gloves. The color is not quite a true green. It's kind of a grayish green on the petioles and on the stems. And then they have these purple spots called maculations. And that's in the name, Conium maculatum, and that refers to those uh, purple spots on the stem. So the leaf stalk has them and the flowering stalk has them as well. This wild poison hemlock is native to North Africa and Europe. And um, it has a long history in that region. It was used by the ancient Greeks as a death penalty. Um, in the death penalty, it was used to poison uh, prisoners who had been sentenced to death, uh, including famously Socrates. So it has a long history in that region for being a highly toxic, deadly plant. It was brought here, believe it or not, on purpose not by early colonists or settlers, not as a medicinal herb, but it was brought as a, as a garden plant on purpose by a horticulturist. Which is, you know, it's not unusual to have plants that are highly toxic as ornamentals or as, as garden plants. That's pretty common. The thing that surprises me, though, is the, the amount of skin irritation this plant can cause when you handle it. Touching any part of the hemlock plant will cause rash and blisters. Both poison hemlock and Queen Anne's lace are wild carrot cousins. Queen Anne's lace flowers, leaves, and roots are edible. Hemlock is not. Don't eat it, of course. This is a highly toxic, incredibly deadly plant. Just a few leaves ingested are enough to kill a human. This plant is toxic to all mammals. Um, when we crush the leaves, you can smell that they're, they're, they have a terrible odor. And the reason is, is because of the alkaloids that are contained within the plant. If consumed, hemlock will cause vertigo and trembling, followed by paralysis of the central nervous system. And without immediate emergency medical attention, death due to respiratory failure. This is where learning to identify plants comes in so handy because foraging is so uh, popular right now. And we wouldn't want people to misidentify the plant and eat some of this. Um, all parts of this plant are toxic, no matter what part it is. The below-ground parts, the leaves, the seeds, everything. But certain insects, Ogle says, are able to use the plant. Flies, beetles, sawflies, wasps eat the nectar from the flowers. Interestingly, I just did a little more research, and I found out that the eastern black swallowtail caterpillars use this plant. This highly toxic plant 
And there has been research done on their ability to neutralize the toxic chemicals in the plant as they eat the leaves. First marketed in America as a landscape winter ornamental fern, hemlock is now widespread across the western U.S. and middle part of the country. Over a dozen states list it as a noxious invasive species requiring control on state and federal lands. It likes poorly drained soils, so soils that stay damp, a little bit moist. That's its preferred habitat. It appreciates a little bit of shade, but in an open field like this, it will do just fine in full sun. But it also invades any kind of disturbed habitat in drier soils in full sun as well. It's known as a pioneer species, so it will be one of the first plants to come in after a disturbance, and it will can, has the potential to completely take over an area. Due to abundant rainfall this late winter and spring on the Ozarks, wild hemlock is having a very successful season. In Arkansas specifically, I've noticed that herbarium specimens show mostly northern Arkansas and iNaturalist, which is a citizen science website or app that a lot of people use to post observations of, of natural organisms or any organisms. Um, it shows mostly also northern Arkansas, with just a few observations in, in the central part of the state. But as hemlock continues to invade, it's displacing native species, Ogle says. Because it is an invasive. So even though it does provide some benefit to wildlife, not to mammals, of course, it's toxic to all mammals, but it does provide some benefit to insects that eat the nectar, there are better plants that we could be planting if we could get this under control and replace it with native species. Those are better plants. Jennifer Ogle devotes time to surveying wild landscapes as collections manager for the University of Arkansas Herbarium. What that is, it's a collection of dried, preserved plants. And we have the largest collection in the state at around 125,000 specimens. Of course, this collection includes non-native and invasive species. So we have wild hemlock in our collection. We have specimens of other species that we can compare each, each one to to see the differences and make sure we're identifying wild hemlock correctly. Founded in 1875, the herbarium documents the diversity and distribution of both vascular and non-vascular plants in Arkansas, utilized by researchers and students. The facility is open to the public as well by appointment. Ogle also suggests an online resource for insight on invasive plants like poison hemlock. I like the website bugwood.org. It's, a, uh, in, it's, in, it's specific about invasive species. It's based out of the University of Georgia, and it has a wealth of information about all of the invasive species known to occur in, in the United States. The late, great, noted herbalist, author, and photographer Stephen Foster once wrote that death from poison hemlock, a gangly plant of no particular beauty, he says, is variously described as tranquil to violently delirious. So, listener, consider yourself warned. Do not pick the hemlock. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Officials from the Arkansas Employee Benefits Division are raising concerns over the state's health insurance policy. Arkansas provides coverage for about 160,000 state and public school employees, along with retirees and their families. Jake Bleed is the director of Employee Benefits Division, and on Friday he told the State Board of Finance that the state's current cost share of 65% of health insurance premiums is not enough. Right now, our rates do not reflect those practices. Our rates have actually been held flat for a number of years. And those of you who've worked in insurance for any amount of time know that as claims costs go up, if the rates are held flat, then those rates are increasingly uh, not reflective of the actual cost coverage being provided. Bleed said the state needs to increase the rate it pays for employee health insurance to around 80 percent. According to a memo given to the Board of Finance, if the state keeps the rate at 65 percent, the state's health insurance plan for public school employees will begin deficit spending within three years. The board unanimously approved the rate increase, but it will need approval from the legislature and the governor to take effect. Last week, organizers of the Bentonville Film Festival announced this year's lineup, also highlighting how the festival amplifies the voices of historically underrepresented people in the entertainment industry. Gina Davis is the founder of the festival, and she spoke over Zoom to a crowded room to highlight just how diverse the lineup would be this year. 
More than 82% of the competitive program is from content creators who identify as female or gender nonconforming, 65% who identify as BIPOC, Asian, or Pacific Islander, 62% who identify as LGBTQIA+, 42% who are over 50, and 20% who identify as a person with a disability. In addition for the 2020 Two program, on-screen leads are 90% women gender nonconforming, 60% BIPOC, Asian or Pacific Islander, 25% LGBTQIA, and 12% representing people with disabilities. The 8th Annual Bentonville Film Festival opens June 22nd with a world premiere of The Seven Faces of Jane, an experimental film directed in part by seven different people, including Gia Coppola, Zan Casavetes, Ken Jong and others. Screenings for the festival will take place at Fermentation Hall inside the Momentary, the Gina Davis Outdoor Theater just outside of the Momentary, and at the Thaden School. Single day and full weekend passes are available for purchase, and more information can be found at bentonvillefilm.org. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, welcoming classic country rock group Nitty Gritty Dirt Band to the Auditorium in Eureka Springs this Thursday, June 9th. Band hits include Mr. Bojangles, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, House at Pooh Corner, and more. Tickets are available online at tickets.thundertix.com. The 2022 season of Naturals Baseball has begun at Arvest Ballpark in Springdale. Ticket information and a full list of promotions are available at nwanaturals.com. This is Ozarks at Large, and I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. While many charity organizations dedicate themselves to helping families with food, housing, clothing, many forget diapers in the mix. The Diaper Collective is the only aid organization that focuses on diapers specifically. Last month, the charity received a 100,000 diaper donation from Sam's Club and Huggies. I spoke to Audrey Zavaleta, executive director of Diaper Collective, about how much this donation will impact Northwest Arkansas families. So the Diaper Collective formed um, in 2020, kind of out of the pandemic. Um, And our mission really was to address diaper need. We realized it was a big hole in the community. Um, And we wanted to really be able to address it in a collaborative way. So we kept seeing how, you know, multiple organizations throughout NWA were trying to address it, but they didn't have resources, didn't have the time necessarily. And so we really wanted to work collaboratively with organizations so that we could do the work of collecting the donations and counting and the inventory and the distribution so that they could do their important work of getting the diapers to the families and children. And what kind of need exists in Arkansas for diapers? Does SNAP or WIC cover diapers and... No, so that, I think that's one of the most shocking statistics still for me, that SNAP does not cover diapers and neither does WIC. So it is really a big hole um, that's not addressed by any you know, state or federal programs. And nationally, one in three families struggle with not having enough diapers for their kids. One in three. One in three. That's a staggering statistic. It is. And when you think about, you know, when you dig down a little bit deeper and think about how it affects families, you know, if most child care centers require parents to send eight to ten diapers a day. So if you don't have enough, can't send your child to daycare, which means can't hold a steady job, you know, so the economic impact and then the health impact, like you're talking about kiddos that, you know, families are having to reuse diapers or use something else as a diaper. And it's just staggering and sad. (laughs) Yeah. I had no idea that you had to send diapers that they didn't provide them. Nope. Mm -hmm. Is there a sort of cyclical kind of pattern to Mm -hmm. this issue? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, they've done lots of studies too about even linking like maternal depression to the lack of diapers. I mean, obviously, like, can you imagine as a mom, you know, wanting to provide for your child, but not having, it's a basic need um, that often gets overlooked. I mean, we talk about, you know, the formula shortage and, you know, during COVID, like the, the shortage of food, but you've also, babies have to have diapers. <laughs> so kind of gearing a little bit towards the diaper collective, mm-hmm. 
pre-donation about how many families were you guys serving? How many diapers were being dispersed? So we've grown really quickly since 2020. Um, we, When we started out in 2020, we partnered with Bread of Life Food Pantry, which was one of the main reasons we were even able to launch the Diaper Collective, because they offered us space. So they were our first partner. Um, and since then, we've, we've grown to 13 partners and went from distributing, you know, hun- a couple hundreds of diapers a month to now we distribute about anywhere from like 14 to 16,000 diapers a month. The workload. (laughs) How have you seen it increase or what, how has it changed since, since you started? I think we're getting more, um, we're, we're helping more people as we're moving forward. Have any families or partners reacted? What is kind of the, the community response there that yeah. you're seeing, at least from partners or families? Yeah, it's been amazing. Um, one, I think partners have been so thankful, appreciative, um, and then also just really excited to be able to offer families something sustainable because I think before it was something where maybe maybe one month they would have diapers, but the next month they wouldn't. And there was never a guarantee, like maybe they have size ones, but they don't have size fours. And so now they're able to actually request the size that the child needs and know and guarantee that family, okay, you can come back next month and have diapers. Um, And so I think they've been really excited and appreciative about that. Um, And the community has rallied around this in such an incredible way. So for the first year, we bought maybe two boxes of diapers the entire year. The rest were raised through diaper drives. Like, literally people here in the community purchasing diapers and donating them. It was really, really exciting to see that. I'm, as a non-parent, I'm wondering (laughs) how expensive are diapers? What kind of burden would a parent normally expect, or how much would they expect to spend? It's a lot. So I think, you know, typically a baby and it can rain, it can be different as the child grows, but a baby goes through about eight to 12 diapers a day. Um, and a box can typically cost you, you know, $23 and up. I mean, up to like 40, 40 something dollars. And so when you're talking about multiple boxes a month, it can get really expensive. I'm curious if there's a kind of pivot to maybe cloth diapering? Is there a sustainable kind of alternative or are there talks about moving into more of that way? Is that a solution for some Yes, parents? yes. I love that you bring that up. So we um, have kind of worked that into our strategic plan um, and hope to start offering cloth diapers maybe towards the end of 2023 um, because we realize that, that it's a way more sustainable plus can, you know, cost effective and good for the environment. Um, but it's not a, it's not a solution for every family because to do cloth diapers, you have to have access to a washer and dryer Um, and depending on how many diapers you have um, you could be doing loads of laundry like every other day and some families don't have a washer and dryer so that means carting their cloth diapers to a you know a laundry service somewhere and so sometimes it's not a solution for every family but we would be so excited to begin to offer that to some families that do have the ability to do it. There's a diaper bank in Missouri that has a cloth diaper program, a very robust cloth diaper program, and they ship out cloth diapers to families that are interested and able to do it, and we hope to get there eventually. I'm sure that's a rare find around here. First, that the diaper collective even exists, and then Mm -hmm. to expand on that, Mm -hmm. I'm sure. I'm curious, have you seen the prices of diapers themselves increase? We've seen increases with inflation, with shortages, supply Mm -hmm. chain issues, are diapers and the diaper industry facing similar struggles? Yes, they have increased just in 2021. They increased quite a bit. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine what burden that places Mm -hmm. on parents if Mm -hmm. you can't. They're already, you already need a lot. Yeah. Then you have to spend more. Mm -hmm. Um, Audrey, if you and I talk in five years, what do you hope we'll be talking about when it comes to the Diaper Collective? Mm, That's a great question. I I really hope that we can 
um, I guess collaboration and expansion, I think, are the two words that come to mind. Um, expansion, I know that we're probably barely scraping the surface on the need here. Um, I think that, you know, I would love to be able to see us partnering with many, many more organizations throughout Northwest Arkansas that are serving kids and families. And then collaboration, too. So when we um, when we first launched the Diaper Collective, there were zero nationally affiliated diaper banks in Arkansas. Zero. And so we're the first, um, but I would love to see more. I would love to see that kind of catch fire and see more organizations throughout Arkansas begin to meet the need and be interested in meeting the need. We've had calls from like Little Rock, Batesville. I mean, like people, oh, do you guys have diapers? And it's like, we don't currently have the capacity to expand that far but to be able to kind of see the vision catch on and be able to help other organizations throughout the state would be super exciting. Did you foresee the Diaper Collective expanding this much when you first started <laughs> when, you know, this pre- this um, organization first began? No. We, I mean, no. It, it exploded. And I think even because Family Network has been around for like over 20 years and um, very established. And But I think whenever we started tossing this idea around. There was definitely some hesitation, like, you know, this is a big undertaking. Can we do this? And, um, and it, I, I'd never dreamed that it would grow so quickly. I mean, we're already kind of out of space in this building and we've not even been here a year. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's pretty shocking. Um, we're just super thankful to Sam's club and Kimberly Clark Huggies, um, especially the local teams because they they recognized the need and they did the work and they reached they actually reached out to the National Diaper Bank Network, which we're affiliated with, and said they wanted to make a local impact. And so they're the ones that reached out to us and um, and made an incredible donation that's going to make it our lives easier for the next five to six months as we're able to distribute these diapers and focus more of our efforts on sustainability and additional diaper drives and just makes a big big difference we're super appreciative i'm wondering if there's after that five to six month mark Mm -hmm. what will happen then do we you know hope that there's more donations coming in or yeah absolutely so we hope that we can continue the partnership with the sam's club and huggies um and you know be able to show them what an impact that donation has made and then we also are going to continue the diaper drive so um Currently, we do about two a year, one in the fall for Diaper Need Awareness Week, which is in September, and then one in the spring. So we'll be gearing up for a community-wide diaper drive in September for sure. I spoke to Audrey Zavaleta, executive director of the Diaper Collective, last week from their Springdale facility. This is Ozarks at Large. We have an emergency at Westside Middle School. And we've got everybody in route. Everybody's in route. Okay, just be somewhere where it's safe. Okay. Stay inside. Okay. Stay inside, okay? 911, where's your emergency? Uh, this is Westside Middle School. We yes. have several children now. We need more than one ambulance. Ma'am, we've, we've got all we the ambulance. We need too. We've got all the ambulance. We've got shots fired. Okay, they're still being fired. Where are they coming from? No, it looks like they're coming from the woods. We need someone here pronto. This is Ozarks at Large, and that's a sound that's become all too familiar. Frantic 911 calls about a mass shooting at a school. That wasn't recorded yesterday or last week or even last month. It was in March of 1998 in Jonesboro, Arkansas, at the Westside Junior High School. Here to break down some of the events of that day is Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Hey, Randy. How hey, you? cuz. How's it going? It's going. Thanks well, for being the, here. Yeah, the, this was a, a really tough one to yeah. do, but it seemed kind of timely and uh, something we kind of needed to uh, to lay out uh, because this it, it happened in Jonesboro, Arkansas, and yeah. it happened before, uh, you know, Uvalde, before Sandy Hook. Before, before Columbine. Even before Columbine. Yeah. And I think it was just sort of forgotten about. If you don't recall, uh, two boys, Mitchell Johnson, who was 13, wow. and Andrew Golden, and he was 11, 
uh, opened fire on their teachers and classmates at uh, Westside Junior High in Jonesboro. Uh, one of them had gone up and pulled the fire alarm, and they waited outside in a wooded area uh, armed with all kinds of uh, pistols and rifles and opened fire on them and uh, killed one teacher, uh, four students, and injured another ten. You can imagine that, you know, word spread pretty quickly in KTV, where I was working at the time. Um, It happened right after lunch, and we interrupted programming uh, with a bulletin. So here's KTV's Karen Fuller with the first bulletin going out. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Karen Fuller in the Channel 7 newsroom. We interrupt your regular programming to tell you about a breaking story out of Craighead County this afternoon. Shortly before 1 o'clock, we're told that a shooting at Westside Middle School in Jonesboro along Highway 18 may have resulted in multiple injuries. According to Emerson Ambulance, at least 16 units have been dispatched to the scene. We're not certain right now how many injuries there are and whether it's a combination of students and teachers. Emergency workers on the scene do tell us, however, that at least 12 people have been hurt. CNN is reporting as well that the Craighead County Sheriff's Department is calling this a very serious situation. We're trying to get confirmation from the state police who are on the scene as well with Highway Police, Jonesboro Police and Craighead County Sheriff's Units, as well as again 16 ambulance units dispatched today to Westside Middle School. We will pass along more information when it becomes available to to us. Stay tuned now for your regular programming. That was KATV's Karen Fuller with the breaking news bulletin from the Westside Junior High School shooting. Um, so as this progressed, uh, what happened? How did how Well, did this you- was the kind of thing, and you know this, covering news, it, you're getting little yeah. trickles of information. And as they come in, when you can develop enough information that you want to Uh, give to the public because you just don't want to waste people's time staying on and on and on. But as you get relevant information, uh, you'll go back on the air. And in this case, uh, there was a a quickly called news conference by the sheriff's department and state police, and they were updating the public on what was a very uh, confusing situation at the time, to say the least. What we can tell you about what's happening now at the scene is the need for blood going on. The Red Cross is saying that at least 170 people have shown up at their headquarters in Jonesboro. They are in desperate need of O negative and O positive blood, the universal universal donor types. The state police press conference that we were awaiting around the 4 o'clock hour has now begun. We want to take you there live and tap in to see if we can learn some new information, possibly some names of the victims and possibly the suspects. Uh, I understand it was all females, to my understanding, uh, girls and teachers, all right, two teachers. Uh, but as far as the condition, I haven't communicated with the hospital at this time, so I don't know. Uh, not to my knowledge, but if there is, those, the investigators will get to the bottom of that real quickly. You know what I found? Is that licensed to uh, the suspect's family? Uh, I haven't asked that question myself. I don't know. Any idea where they got all the I haven't asked that question. I don't know. Sheriff, you said you're one of the first people on the scene and you described it as chaos. Do you, can you tell me you know, what some of the eyewitnesses told you when you first arrived? Did anyone try and intervene when the, sh- when the shooting started? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, no, I have no idea. Whenever we got there, natural people was running every direction all over the school campus. So, Were uh, they running for cover? Or, or just, you know, you, you can imagine someone shooting a bunch, a bunch of young children at that age. You know, they would naturally just be running. And then Governor uh, Mike Huckabee also held a news conference that afternoon from the governor's mansion. Um, We've got a portion of what he had to say. And our sincere disappointment that it did. But we also express our collective sympathy to every one of the victims, their families, their friends, but perhaps most significantly to all of those children who will, for the rest of their lives, have indelible images embedded into their psyches forever on the tragedy that they witnessed today. And so was this the first time that you guys had covered, I mean, was this the first school shooting or like mass shooting in Arkansas that had ever occurred? Yes. And it was at the time one of the worst in the country. There had been 
a couple. There, uh, I believe there's one in California and maybe one in Texas, but uh, this this was uh, a very unusual uh, incident for not only to happen for us to cover or uh, to happen in the state of Arkansas. It was it was uh, a shocking thing to deal with, and um, as Governor Huckabee mentioned uh, the memories and the trauma that students will yeah. have to deal with for years. Well, one of the students at the school uh, talked to KATV about her experience and how a teacher actually saved her life. We turned out then a boy, Tristan, he come up to us and he um, asked Miss Spencer for help because his arm was when he had been shot. And then she, she started telling people to get on the ground. She started pulling kids down to the ground. And after they was on the ground, then I still wasn't on the ground because I was like panicked, kind of. And Miss Wright, I guess Mitchell, he um, had pointed the gun at me, and Miss Wright had seen him, I guess. And whenever she did that, she stepped in front of me, and he shot her, and because she had pushed me back to the side, and he had shot her. And that student was referring to uh, teacher Shannon Wright, who was the one teacher who was was killed in the shooting. This was kind of unusual, but at the hospital, one of the parents uh, of the injured uh, was there, and they they had her um, talking about her daughter being one of the survivors of the attack. No, I have felt nothing but um, relief. The surgeon called and said everything was fine when she came in the room. The tears were flowing. She was asleep. I knew she was okay. Um, I feel guilty. I still have my baby. Um, there's mothers that don't. Um, I feel sorry for the little boys' families. Um, I just, I don't know what's possessed them to do what they've done. I just, I don't know. And so can you remember at the time having been there what it was like to be in Jonesboro after this happened? I mean, how was, what was the mood of the town? It was uh, very somber, uh, and it was almost like people were in a in a daze. Um, it it was a, a very difficult situation for for everyone involved. And so, since you had no real playbook for kind of how to cover a shooting like this, you know, how did the rest of that coverage unfold? For the- well, we, like I said, we had people there 24-7. We had our satellite truck. We had at least uh, three reporters, three or four photographers, and a couple of producers because we were basically doing our newscasts there all week. So let's go ahead and move into the second day after, and this is, uh, again, Chris May uh, anchoring the evening news from Jonesboro. Jonesboro tonight, Karen, is certainly a city awash in grief as the full magnitude of this tragedy begins to set in. It's been a a little less than 30 hours now since five people, including four young girls, were gunned down in the courtyard of Westside Middle School, just a few miles from where we are now. Ten others remain hospitalized tonight, and one is in critical condition. The two suspects in this crime, ages 13 and 11, are suspected of setting off a fire alarm and then gunning down students and teachers as they gathered outside. For the first time, the two suspects appeared in court. These are the suspects, identified by the Jonesboro Sun as 13-year-old Mitchell Johnson and 11-year-old Andrew Golden. During a probable cause hearing before Judge Ralph Wilson late today, both were formally charged with five counts of capital murder and 10 counts of battery. But because of their age, they're charged as juveniles. That means even if they're convicted, they could not be held beyond their 18th birthdays. We're looking at all avenues and all options, but if they are charged in juvenile court, that is not an option that's available to us to to prosecute them as adults. Prosecutor Brent Davis, who five years ago prosecuted the killers of three West Memphis second graders, would not say if the suspects are cooperating with the investigation. And so you were able to track down the prosecutor. That's right. Uh, Brent Davis, who was the prosecutor, he also prosecuted the West Memphis Three. Oh, wow. Uh, So he was involved in both of those high-profile cases. 
but I kind of wanted to know what he thought uh, upon reflection of 24 years. And so I caught up with him. He's now a retired judge. And uh, I talked to him, and these are his thoughts about the continuing problem and, you know, if anything's actually changed. When the West Side shootings occurred in 98, it was, I think the one in Pearl, Mississippi had occurred before that, but there was so little history of mass school shootings that it it, it was a new scenario for, I know it was for us, and there wasn't a lot of past experience to draw from as far as how to try to address it or deal with it. Uh, unfortunately, now it's uh, it, it's a much more frequent occurrence. I don't know that there's been uh, much in the way of success at trying to deal with the issues or try to limit them. But uh, uh, unfortunately, I think as far as the type of victim assistance that's available and the experienced people that can be brought in to deal with uh, some of the issues of the aftermath, um, it seems that uh, we're a little bit more competent and experienced at doing that, unfortunately. And we'll we'll hear from him a little later. Like I say, we had a huge staff of reporters, and things were continuing to develop. And so um, here's reporter Suzanne Wynn with more developments of the day. We learned today that federal charges will not be filed against the two young suspects in the schoolyard shooting, but local officials are moving ahead in their investigation. Today they laid out much of their evidence in a late afternoon press conference. Channel 7 Suzanne Wynn was there. Included among those items are the following weapons. One universal 30 caliber carbine. One Davis Industrial, one Davis Industry 38 Special. Two Deputy Prosecutor Mike Walden reads off a list of firearms found on the two young suspects and at the scene of Tuesday's shooting rampage. Police recovered 10 weapons in all, including three rifles and seven handguns. They believe 22 shots were fired. Of the guns recovered, the majority appear to have been the property of the grandfather of the 11-year-old, whose home was burglarized the morning prior to the shooting. Suzanne Wynn there with KATV. And so she was talking about the grandparents. The the grandfather, right. Okay. Who had a large collection of weapons. And uh, from what I recall, they, you know, no gun locks, no gun safes. But um, the kids uh, broke in. It was uh, Andrew Golden's grandfather, Doug. And... uh, ABC's Don Quinones uh, talked to the grandfather. Drew told me that the other boy came to the house and had brought a torch and a hammer, wrenches. They were going to try to get his dad's gun vault open, which was a steel vault, to get their rifles out of it. They couldn't get the vault open. Drew did not know the combination to the gun vault. There were three guns, three handguns that was not locked up in the vault. One of them was a 38 Derringer. One of them was a small snub nose, like 38 caliber chief special. The other was a, uh, a security six 357. After they failed, to open that gun vault, they came here and broke in. I don't think that that was the intentional plans to start with, but they were desperate to get a hold of the guns. So they broke into the basement door, broke the glass out of the door, went upstairs, and got three rifles and ammunition for those rifles and four pistols. ABC's Don Quinones there speaking with the grandfather of Andrew Golden. That's right. So after this has all occurred, can you walk us through, you know, the charges that were brought against them and kind of the trial that that comes up that goes 
forward. Right. Well, originally uh, on state charges, since they were juveniles, I mean, gosh, they were 11 and 13, yeah. which was another entirely crazy factor for the story. I mean, you hear about Columbine, and they're usually late teens, uh, maybe even early 20s. But, I mean, these were little kids, and you would see their pictures, and you'd see them walking into court, and you would just be shocked at how young these kids were. And um, I was just, you know, flabbergasted. But uh, they were originally going to be able to be released when they were 18. Those were on the state charges. But the federal weapons charges uh, allowed for them to be sentenced until they were 21 and held in a juvenile facility. But because of the law and because of their age, they were going to be free when they were 21 years old. So it came time uh for their plea agreement and their their time in court. And so Mitchell Johnson's attorney uh, spoke to reporters before the formal court appearance. He'll be making a statement, he'll be reading a statement uh, and apologizing to the families uh, of the victims. Uh, his father asked me to come out here and tell you this. And uh, I'll be going back in probably in about a half an hour. And then Mr. Johnson, Mitchell's father, and I will come out Probably, hopefully, if everything is running on time, about 11 o'clock, and talk to you some more. But uh, Mitchell is extremely uh, shaken this morning, and he's extremely anxious to basically talk to the victims and their families. And he has said repeatedly that this is something that he's wanted to do, and this is his opportunity to do it. And he's looking forward to it very much. He's actually wanted to do that from the first time I met with him. He said that was the most important thing he could do, is talk to the victims and their families. And now he has the chance to do it. And that's what he's doing. That was the attorney for Mitchell Johnson speaking at his plea hearing. Uh, and you have the statement from Mitchell Johnson. That's right. He went into court and he wanted to read a, a statement to the, the families of the victims. And this is what he said. Hi, my name is Mitchell. My thoughts and prayers are with those people who I killed or shot and their families. I am really sad inside about everything. My thoughts and prayers are with those kids that I go to school with. I really want people to know the real Mitchell someday. Sincerely, Mitchell Johnson. So that was his statement. He was very quiet. He had his head bowed down. Um, and they both um, were sentenced to uh, juvenile imprisonment until they were 21 years old. Now, the husband of Shannon Wright, the teacher who was killed, was there in court, and he came out uh, after the plea, and uh, this is what he had to say. Uh, until our lawmakers and our governor, uh, I mean, our governor needs to call a special session, our lawmakers need to make some changes before another shooting happens in another school and some more families have to go through this. We need our law changed. We can't wait till January if this changes because the chances are this will happen again, especially when kids across Arkansas realize that they can get away with something like this and there's no justice. And, you know, you hear the same thing today from the parents. It's yeah. like you hear, I mean, this is what uh, really struck me is that I listened to probably 20 hours oh, of wow. our live coverage, which was tough enough yeah. to go through all of that. Um, but I had been through all of that before, but to sit down and watch it progress um, was really I guess depressing. You and would be say. so similar to what we're well, seeing and, today. And the it, the fact that any of those sound clips that yeah. we have been listening to could have been recorded yesterday. Yeah. It you know you just insert the town name. You go you know you substitute Jonesboro with Sandy Hook. Yeah. You Sandy Hook with Uvalde. It's just. It, it seems like it's just routine. Right, and, yeah. and it's not going to let up. But I did talk to Brent Davis right. about 
you know, what he thought about if there were any changes, if there were any improvements in the system, and um, this is what he had to say. Unfortunately, at the time this one occurred back in 1998 and a few years after that, there there were no good answers as to what caused these two to do what they did. Uh, and the, the shootings that I was familiar with at that time, uh, I mean, they had a, there were a hodgepodge of issues that contributed to it, but what would cause somebody to go off the rails to the point of committing acts like these did, uh, I'm just not sure there's any, any good or clear-cut answers that would help us uh, on a regular basis be able to address and prevent these things. That was Prosecutor uh, Brent Davis. And, you know, obviously nothing's changed. Right. Um, that seems to be the answer, which is sad. Um, and so what um, happened to the, the boys, so Johnson and Golden, um, they were released when they were 21. What's the update now? Well, um, Andrew Golden was uh, – released from prison in May of 2007, which was his 21st birthday. And um, his whereabouts were unknown until he applied for a concealed weapon permit. He had been living under an alias, and he, uh, he applied for a license, of course, didn't get it, but his real name real identity was discovered. Um, Andrew Golden died. Uh, he died in 2019. He had uh, been driving with uh, three other people, his, his wife, his son, and another adult, and they were injured, but he was killed, um, and they had been living in Jackson, Missis, uh, Jackson, Missouri. He was killed in a, a crash in Missouri. So Mitchell Johnson uh, was released on his 21st birthday in August of 2005. Uh, he had spent, I believe, seven years in prison, and uh, Andrew Golden had spent nine years because of their age difference. Um, Mitchell Johnson was arrested uh, in Fayetteville on weapons charges and possession of marijuana, and he continued to get in trouble and not only was sentenced to four years on the weapons and drug charges, but he received another 12-year prison sentence for theft of a credit card and possession of marijuana again. So uh, finally, in 2009, Johnson was sentenced to an additional six years uh, because of some more charges that were billed out of that the credit card scam. But um, the latest we've heard is that in 2016, ABC News reported online that Johnson was released uh, in July of 2015. And I don't know at this point where he is, yeah. but uh, it might be worth a follow-up. A tough story, but an important one. Thanks for um, sharing that with us, Randy. It's been good to be here, and uh, I won't get to see you next week. I know. Yeah, this is our last our last one. Ending yeah. it on a high note. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, so Kyle will be back, and um, you know, maybe he'll let us do a guest spot every once in a while. Okay, that'll be great. <laughs> we'll go on the road. Or there something. you go. Yeah, we'll take this on the road. Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. This is Ozarks at Large, and I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. As reported last week, Her Set, Her Sound returned to Prairie Street Live last Friday and Saturday. The festival is dedicated to celebrating female and gender-diverse artists and creating inclusive spaces. I went to DJ Delight's set on day two of the festival and spoke to more of the artist about her experience. All right, next up we have DJ Delight on stage.
<laughs> a lot of people have been asking me that today. <laughs> that is a million. It's like it's a it's a mix. I'm nervous, but I'm excited because I'm like, oh yeah, and yeah. Like, it's Everybody's been great, like this yeah. whole weekend. So. I want, I want, I'm gonna have to be a little rad. I'm gonna have, I'm, do two. I'm, I'm wild. Gonna, okay, we're gonna do two. <laughs> okay, there we go. There we go. So we're gonna do some RB, we're gonna get some soul in there. Ooh. Um, I'm not. <laughs> I am current moment or. Maybe lately. What have you been feeling lately? Lately. Lately, I've been always grateful. Gratitude. Attitude of gratitude. Get you a long way. There you go. And I'm looking for... Nothing. <laughs> I have everything that I need, but I think humanity's looking for love. I like this. It's got deep. <laughs> the lack of love, man. That's what people need to hear. Should I tie it in a knot to secure it? Yeah, make sure she's real good in That was DJ Delight's set and a more the artist from her set, her sound, last Saturday. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Sulphur Springs. 91.3 FM KUAF is a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas, and Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. I'm Timothy Dennis. And I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Contributors to today's show include Jacqueline Froelich, Matthew Moore, and Daniel Kruth. Special thanks to Randy Dixon from the Pryor Center for stopping by for another Monday dip into the Pryor Center archives. Additional content for today's show came from KUAR Public Radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. for another Tuesday edition of Ozarks at Large. Until then, be well, and we'll talk again soon.